0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Lee, and this is episode 38. Our guest today has been extremely successful in show jumping, and he is a huge advocate for the sport as a whole. He has developed an extremely unique and successful global virtual lesson program called Equival. So besides that, we have tons to cover. So without further ado, here is Jay Duke love to just jump right in and hear a little bit about kind of how you got to where you are today and how you started with riding.
1: Well, we have to go back a little ways on that one. Um, (laughs) I grew up in a horse family. My mother has trained uh, several riders who rode for Team Canada, including the current chef to keep Mark Laskin. And she trained in Ireland as a teenager and then came back to Canada and started a very successful business, which is still going. Uh, She's retired, but there's still 80 90 horses on her farm and uh, over 150 students and she's been a huge part of the industry in western canada so proud to be part of that lineage on my dad's side uh, he is also into horses he's in the canadian pro rodeo hall of fame Um, he got in there for calf roping and for cutting horses he's also in the cutting horse hall of fame he won the nationals uh, four times in that so i grew up, um, I grew up on a farm and horses was a natural thing that I, I, my first memory of riding, I was four. I have pictures of my first horse show. I was five, um, riding Western, of course. And I started uh show jumping, uh, I think at about the, I don't know, six or something like that. And the first time I ever competed at Spruce Meadows, I was eight years old. Wow. Uh, go, go back a ways. I think that was, um, uh, 1976 seven. I was, I wasn't there at the inaugural Spruce Meadows, but pretty much, I still remember the cow pastures and the the hunter fields there.
0: Hmm. That's amazing. Uh, very cool. So you are, uh, I guess I keep going with your story because obviously there's, there's a lot in between that and where you are today.
1: Yeah, a couple things have happened. (laughs) So we started started running at Spruce at eight. I was, you know, lucky enough to have a good junior career. Ended up winning the Canadian Championships four times: one in the ponies, uh, hunters, junior hunters twice, um, both for the under fifteen and the under eighteen. And then in my last year as a junior, was able to win the Canadian Junior Jumper Championship, um, which was uh, pretty much our biggest award really as a a Canadian rider junior rider that would have been that was always the goal to win that and that ended up happening Um, then after that I went to did a little college, uh, struggled through that, of course, as a horse <laughs> guy, but uh, you got to put your time in. Yeah. And then I um, started riding for, well, oh, I know in between there, I did ride uh, in the inaugural Queen Elizabeth Cup at Spruce Meadows. Um, cool. I think I was 20 or so at that time. Um, the Queen came for that. It was, it was the first time I did it. So that was, that was a pretty big deal. That was, that was pretty cool to, do, to get that done. And then I started riding for, for a farm in California, for Richard Keller, and um, then soon after that, I started writing for the Canadian team and represented the team in uh, Washington and New York and Toronto. That was that was obviously a, a lifelong dream of mine to to get mm-hmm. that done, and it was it was a lot of fun. That was uh, how that kind of all started and progressed, and then after that. Um, just really ran a business and worked hard lived in several places of course like like um, most horse people you're a traveling gypsy Yeah. Um, so I've lived in Denver I've lived in Seattle I've lived in Vancouver I've lived in Calgary um, I tend to stick to the west I just I like the vibe in the west um, mm-hmm. people in the west and so I, I enjoy going back east to horse show but I I prefer to visit only and I've been with the horses involved in all aspects of it from the show jumping point of view. Um, I didn't grow up, you know, now nowadays there's such specialization people are pony trainers only or their application right. trainers only or such. And, and that's great. You know, I'm certainly not, not against that or negative to it. That's kind of the way society has, has gone. I never really did that. That's not how I learned. I learned, okay, it's a horse and you, you know, that you treat them all the same. And I still, you know, the pony lesson will be the same as the grand prix horse lesson. Obviously sure. free of difficulty and the expectations and all of that is greatly changed. But essentially, it comes down to horsemanship and, you know, you're working with an animal and you need to learn to communicate with that animal properly. So... I did do quite a bit in the hunter world as well. Let's see, we had Camus, who was a very famous hunter. He was U.S. pre-green, no, U.S. pre-green champion, and then U.S. first-year green reserve champion. Awesome. Uh, the year he was reserve champion, the first years was fun. There was a very famous horse who many of your listeners probably know named Popeye K, oh, yeah. who uh, was champion that year. And he and Camus went back and forth. And Camus was the better horse, but Popeye K was the more consistent and more mature horse. And got it. Uh, but that was that was a lot of fun doing that. Um so I had my experience in the hunter world and riding, you know, I'd done ridden against all the top jumper guys and then I got to ride against you know John French and Peter Plancher mm-hmm. and all the top hunter guys and so that was that was a good experience as well, not as much fun as jumpers of course, but <laughs> it's, it's still still fun. Um, anytime you're on a nice horse it's a good thing. Totally let's see, developed several young horses, uh, throughout my career. We used to grab horses off the racetrack and yeah. develop them. So had a couple of horses that I developed up to the team level. Um, I had a horse named Mr. Brown. We bought as a three-year-old, got him up to the team level. I uh, rode, you know, him for Canada. Um, had a horse named Glenn Echo that we started, got off the track and brought him up to, the team level. He went on to have a pretty good career. I think injuries derailed him eventually, mm-hmm. but Nikki Shahinian wrote him Um, I think Leslie Burr wrote them. Okay. And I know Nikki wrote them. So he did that with several horses. I think I've had seven horses that we started from the age of like three and then got to an international level. Amazing. Um, so that was, that was fun. I've always loved, loved working with young horses. Um, there's just the development is, is, incredible. Um, I saw yesterday that mindful one, uh, Hunter Derby class in Wellington. Amazing. Yeah. Um, and that was a horse that I bought as a four-year-old. And cool. so bought him as a four-year-old and developed him for five years. Um, I rode him in the jumpers. Um, and people always ask me now, like, well, why did you ride that horse in the jumpers? And there was a couple reasons for that. One is he really wasn't what judges look for in the pre-green and the first-year green division. Honestly, he wouldn't have won anything at all secondly the hunter derbies were just starting um, okay. and I like to credit that horse for actually making part partly making hunter derbies as popular as they are today hmm. he, he really you know kind of captured the media scene and and brought people's attention to that ring so, but the hunter derbies weren't really developing I did one with him when he was six at Thunderbird which was um would terrify people riders today how, how hard it was but yeah and also the other reason I didn't do it was, again, I found he could jump, and so I found the hunters just a little tedious. And so we got him up to the meter 50 level at Spruce Meadows, and he jumped around, and honestly, he wasn't fast enough. Um, he could jump the jumps, and he had yep. great, he just was not quite modern enough with the technicality and speed required of today's today's horses at that level. Sure. Okay. Um, but that was fun to, you know, that was another young horse that was developed. We had a horse, had a horse named King David for 10 years. Mm. That ended up being amateur, Youssef, amateur horse of the year. Bought him as a five-year-old, I think it was, and had him for ten years. He was. He went to FBI Children's. He went to Young Riders and medaled. He started the career of Elizabeth Jingrass, who rode for Team Canada. Yeah. All sorts of things. So he was. He was a very special horse, a big thoroughbred as well. I've been, you know, had some good luck, had some bad luck, and mm-hmm. uh, it's just, it's just a journey, and you you go along with it, and do the best you can.
0: Yeah. Wait, When you're looking for horses, um, I mean, obviously now the norm is to kind of be transitioned out of uh, the track, but where are you normally looking for your young
1: horses? You look for them wherever they are. (laughs) Yeah. If they're they're in the pasture next door, Mm -hmm. then that's where you buy them. If they're at Paul Schachmolle's barn in Germany, that's where you buy them. Right. You know, it's really important to be open-minded about that. Um, I mean, breeding is is a big part of what goes into the... The success of a horse but there's so many stories of you know say poorly bred horses big ben mm. big ben came to canada because nobody in europe would get on him anymore yeah well wow. that's how ian ended up with him um hickstead you know possibly mm-hmm. the greatest horse of all time record wise um honestly eric couldn't stand him for the first couple of years. Uh, (laughs) You know, he just was frustrated with him and, but, you know, no one would buy him because he was so difficult. And then look what what he became, Um, you know, there's, so even today, those horses, you know, exist. And I think you just have to be Mm -hmm. open-minded. You have to be very, very picky about it. Um, I've developed a system of putting saber metrics towards horses. And so you you have a checklist to be go through and then you have that all the different elements of it and it's very detailed very complex Um, you go through all of that and then at the end of it you go with your gut Mm -hmm. No, you you, to me and and this may sound a little corny to some people but if you really love a horse at the end of it you just you look that horse in the eye and you just kind of get a feeling and if you love the horse and you look him in the eye and you get a good feeling then to me you do whatever you can to buy that horse and if you don't love love the horse horse and get that feeling, you walk away and keep looking.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good advice. So let's talk a little bit about Equivalent. Um I've looked at um, your website a little bit, but the idea of uh, virtual lessons I think is something that is starting to gain popularity, but um, I'm sure there are some, I guess some ideas that maybe need to be debunked a little bit with the idea a virtual lesson. So tell me a little bit about that process and how Echo Vault came to be and, and kind of how it's evolved to what it is today.
1: It starts with my desire to help the horse industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's where it begins. There's, you know, knowledge is key to, to everything, and education is is so important. And traditionally, what's happened, and then this still continues to happen, is you have young people coming up within programs, and then of course they learn from you know the, the leader of that program, and if the leader of that program is a good rider and a good trainer and a good horse person then they tend to develop good riders trainers and horse people right. If the leader of that program is not then unfortunately the people they develop you know are not uh, mm-hmm. That way. So, in the industry today, and, and this is the same I think in all sports, is you've got a, you know, you've got your five percent who are fantastic, like very talented, very knowledgeable, hardworking people that love horses and you know and do do a great job. And if you're lucky enough to be with one of those people, um, you're probably going to pick up a lot of what they do. Right. Um, you have the other ninety five percent who aren't, don't have those attributes. So then, as a result, you've got to about 95% of the young people coming up that are not learning, you know, good techniques, proper horsemanship, proper horse care. Um, so that's, that, that's how this all started with me. I would be doing clinics and such, and people would say, oh, you know, we really had fun. We loved the clinic. You know, um, your exercises are very innovative and very creative. Um, we'd like to do more. Can you send me some? And I was like, mm, I'd, I don't really know how to do that. I <laughs> walk into an arena. I throw poles all over the place and I put yep. in there and then I create a lesson. Right. And so, you know, that it was literally about 15, 20 years of being asked that question. Like, well, can you send me more stuff that I became a course designer? And then I was using the course design program. And I was like, oh, wait a sec. Next here's how I can create these lesson plans for people in an easy to use easy to read format
0: mm-hmm.
1: so the um, using the course design program which is not easy the course the computer course design program is a monster and <laughs> <I> <laughs> it, bet. it takes forever to get educated with it and, and stuff but that's a different that's a different interview um, <laughs> so I, I was like oh here here's a way to create this so every the premise of it is this every coach and every Rider has walked into an arena, and this happens like a hundred times a year. It's like, walked into an arena, it's like, what am I going to do today? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, people tend to, you know, teach, I mean, I don't know, I teach myself 70, 80 student, new students every single month. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you have some people that are, say, just private coaches, and they teach the person, well, okay, you're teaching that same person for five years in a row. What, what are you going to do? You know, so every coach has walked into an arena and said, what am I going to do? And what I found is that. With the good coaches, if they walk into an arena and there's a good setup in there as far as where the jumps are or Cavaletti's poles, whatever it is you're working on, if there's a good setup, they can just come up with stuff. They can just grab ideas and like, oh, well, this will work. We can work on straight lines or turns or transitions or whatever, whatever. Right. they just kind of need that little start to, you know, you've got the blank canvas. You just got to give them a little bit of a few colors on the canvas and then then their minds can go with it. Sure. So that's, that's how this idea started was here's, you can be sitting in your tack room you and be like, Oh my God, I got lessons in five minutes. What am I going to do? And pull out your phone and be able to pull up a lesson plan. And it's easy to read. It's simple to use. It takes two minutes to go through. Mm-hmm and boom you have your ideas right and so it doesn't tell you how to teach um there's all sorts of wonderful sites and videos on the internet that are very helpful for for coaching and teaching and and um i endorse that um, that system unfortunately most people today don't take the time to do that and go through that so then those resources and that knowledge is sitting on the internet and nobody's taking advantage of it so this program was designed for millennials, for people with not much time that just need something really quick and really fast. And essentially, it's a blueprint for what to work on. It doesn't tell you how to teach it. It just gives you, it gives you the lessons and it gives you the plan for the lesson. And then how you work with the horse and rider is a little bit up to you. Um, I do give suggestions on what it works for the horse, what it works for the rider, um, but it is is all meant to be very simple and easy to use. And like I said, uh, I believe it's created for today's society.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, it's, def- it's definitely something that you would see in any other industry um, that, you know, offers an online version or, you know, additional help. And um, usually the equestrian industry is like five to 10 years behind. So I'm happy to see that there are people um, kind of taking advantage of this method of, of teaching and, um, being a young professional myself, I'm a private trainer and, um, yeah, I mean, I'm constantly trying to look for different ways to learn and to expand because it's such a lifelong sport that I can't stop learning at age 27. So there's still, it's like the more, you know, and the more you learn, the more you realize you need to learn more. Um, so I think that's amazing that it's becoming more popular to have these online resources, uh, created by reputable people that you can trust and you know um, to be successful um, so I think that the Equivalent, uh system is really really cool and I'm really happy that you're doing things
1: like that oh thank you yeah there's when it comes to learning um, I was lucky enough uh, to ride with some wonderful coaches um, you know I talked about my mother but one of my coaches was Ian Miller who mm-hmm. was uh, you know, number one in the world at one point and, yeah. and a, a legend in the sport and 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 what I learned from him was the same as, and I was also lucky enough, I grew up with Wayne Gretzky, the the hot Uh yeah, I come star and, um, and both Wayne and I, I knew Wayne a little bit and I knew Ian very well having trained with him and both of them had the same philosophy and that was you're learning every day. Mm-hmm. And Ian always was like, there's always something. And he would tell you that today. If he, if you sat down and talked to him on your, on your podcast, he would mm-hmm. talk to you all about what he probably learned yesterday about right. horses that, that he never knew before. And that was always his philosophy. And that is, the, the biggest holdup in the industry today is exactly that. And, and what happens is, you know, there are a lot of people as juniors become, you know, get coaching, coaching, coaching all the time and, mm-hmm. and get, you know, hopefully good training. And then they become, you know, uh, professionals and the training stops. Mm-hmm. And that is honestly, that's absolutely ridiculous. Um, right. that's not the case in any other sport. No. That, that i'm that i'm aware of um, and i play a lot of them and follow all of them mm-hmm. um, you everybody has coaches everybody has training but all of a sudden in show jumping which is one of the more complex sports in the world by far because your teammate is an animal that um, speaks a different language right um, you don't have coaching and training. And so what happens is these, many of these very talented, you know, 17, 18, 19, 20 year old kids end up, you know, they get better and better and then they get a bunch of rides when they're young. But by the time they get to like 23, 24, 25, they're starting on their downhill slope and they mm-hmm. stop working. And by the time they're, you know, 30, 35, when they should be in their prime, their, their riding is greatly regressed from the time they were say 16 years old. Mm-hmm. and it's simply because they just haven't had the coaching now you do see many successful people getting coaching jennifer gates and you know vanessa manix and right. um so many of those people that, that do get the coaching and then of course they just keep progressing because they're getting great coaching right um but that's not the case for 99.9 percent of the industry
0: right the and why, way- why do you think that is
1: well, I think there's a lack of foundation and a lack of system, um, And I but basically what happens is like, well, okay, I just need to make money at this and I need to earn a living, and it's very hard to earn a living in this sport. It's, it's right. very hard work, and it's very competitive. You have so many people in it um, for the lack of resources in it, financial mm-hmm. resources in it. So I think people just, you know, they just get to work. And then it, part of it comes from just like, oh, I'm good, enough. Now I don't need to get, you know, I don't need someone telling me what to do. Right. I know what I'm doing, you know? So, and that is, that's insecurity is what that is. That's a, you know, a person who has a lack of confidence, not wanting to get better. And you, you see a lot of that. So I think that's, uh, an industry issue and it's also a societal issue.
0: Yeah. I mean, I feel like there is a chunk of young professionals out there who, um, you know, made it through their junior career, um, were able to invest in that process and then come out as, uh, maybe transitioning into a young professional and, uh, either don't have the financial resources anymore or the, um, I guess the, or the connections to find good training. Um, what, do you suggest for for that kind of
1: young professional? There's lots of help out there. Right. Um, go for, first of all, watch the watch the good people. Mm-hmm. That's um, go to the warm up ring. Um, I remember, you know, being a junior rider at Spruce Meadows, and you know, being all in awe of all the European riders when I was like 15 years old. and Yeah. You know, one, one quick story was, I remember watching one of the European riders, and I'm sorry, I don't recall his name, um, but he was, you know, flexing his horse and doing, you know, really working a horse in a way I hadn't seen before. And so I just walked up to him and asked him, I said, well, why are you, you know, why are you doing that with your horse? Um, you know, that's not something that you could do in the show ring. Mm-hmm. And he said, when I'm in the ring, I am going to lose... 90% of the rideability that I have on my horse here in this warm-up ring. Mm -hmm. So I need to make sure that 10% is good enough to win that jump off and perform that horse, do everything I need to do. And that stuck to me to this day as far as when it comes to my expectations of, say, my flat work, it's never good enough. Like Mm -hmm. You can always have more response and more suppleness and more power and strength and, and everything that goes along with that. Take away, and I'll say to my students, like, okay, here you, you're flatting around right now. Take away 90% of what you have right now. And that's what you're going to have in the ring. Right. So, but the point of that story is just ask people, like you can walk up to Richard Spooner mm-hmm. today and say, um, Hey, you know, Mr. Spooner, what? you know, I don't, I have a question for you and he will, he will take the time to do that. You can do that mm-hmm. uh, with John Madden. You can do that. You know, with, I, I could go on and on and on. Um, those writers are happy to, to give their time and help to, to people coming up and people that just want to be better. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand that's very intimidating. I, I get it, but honestly, it's a, it's a lot easier than anything. So my advice is go to the warm up rings and watch, don't, don't, right. you know, and watch and watch, watch the great riders. And if you, if you can't be at that horse show, you know, try to watch them on TV or whatever. Mm-hmm. Don't watch the bad riders. You <laughs> By watching, by watching you, you pick up a lot of the habits mm-hmm. that, that yeah. people have. And it's true. And so, um, and, there was a story with Rodney Jenkins, and uh, again, ho- hopefully, some of your listeners know know these old names. I'm <laughs> but Rodney Jenkins was uh, another legend of the sport, mm-hmm. and uh, as good a rider as anyone's ever seen. And uh, he had a habit of uh, sometimes flapping his elbows at mm-hmm. the jumps, and uh, so a bunch of people started copying him and doing the same. And he said, you know, he says, you know, I do a lot of things really well on a horse. I, I don't know why people want to do, you know, one of the things I don't do well on a horse, <laughs> <laughs> but you pick up, you do, you pick up on things by watching.
0: It's yeah. true. Yeah. I, my, my girls always are looking back at their videos and saying like, Oh, like, I added here or did this or that. And I'm like, don't watch those. Watch your winning rounds because you really, it's true. You do the, the, watching is such a powerful learning tool. So watching the, the, the fail videos and the things that didn't go well, not, not the best idea for your learning. But, um, I love what you were, um, saying about talking to the, uh, professionals who are doing it well and, and riding well. And especially ones that have been around for a bit, because I mean, a, a good reminder, I know for me is something that I think through when I, um, am talking to, uh, more esteemed professionals like that is that they they've been in my shoes at one point in time too. And, um, you know, being young and not knowing much and trying to learn as much as possible and, uh, trying to figure out how to do that and navigate everything. So, um, I feel like that's always a good thing to keep in the back of your mind also.
1: Oh, 100%. And you'd be amazed how, how much help is out there. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and, and if you're really shy, um, walk a course beside somebody kind of behind them a little bit and just kind of yes. listen to the things That's they share. Maybe, maybe you're, you're, you're not comfortable talking to someone. So just, you know, just kind of be around them. Um, uh-huh. and you know, you'll, you'll pick up on things. Um, and that applies to say, even grooming the horses, mm-hmm. hang out, hang out with the really top top grooms, mm-hmm. um, find out how they care about the horses, um spend time with farriers you know I mean when when my horses are being shod um I'm there totally and you know I don't have a horse shod without me being there and not that I'm telling the farrier what to do it's that we're working together I'm giving the farrier feedback on what's happening with the horse you know with the program and, and all of that stuff um and then I'm also learning from them same applies to your vet like mm-hmm. you know if a vets looking at my horse I'm I'm there and and I I'm helping the vet I'm guiding the vet because the vet isn't with that horse every single day. Yep. And so I'm helping the vet. And then the vet is, you know, we're both educating each other to to figure out what is best for that horse. Um, totally. All of those things you, you know, you can learn from. And that's, I don't think, unfortunately, that that's a big reason, you know, Europe is so successful because there's just a lot more hands on, um, mm-hmm you know unfortunately in in america so much of the full service thing, you know, I, I, I've been, I worked in a barn where the students were not allowed to brush their horses or tack them up. Right. And I was like, that's a big part of just being with your horses is actually in spending time with them. Like to me, they're not a unit, you know, you don't, it's not like getting in a car and driving in and getting out. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a matter of, um, you know, the time you spend with that horse to, that is so, that is so precious. Riding that horse is, is a part of the experience but not all of it by any means.
0: Right. Yeah, definitely. So you've, we've talked about your riding and your training and the importance of education. What's what's kind of an area of uh, this niche of the industry that you're particularly passionate about that you feel like the rest of the industry either doesn't know a lot about or just doesn't talk a lot about that you'd like to shed some light on?
1: Well, I do think a lot of people that know me or read my articles or read my social media posts do know I'm, I'm not shocked about expressing my <laughs> opinions, um, there's no question about that. And sometimes that gets me in trouble. But I do think you need to be, you know, forthright for what you believe in. Um, I think probably the biggest thing that bothers me would be the hunters in America. That's a big, big issue for me, um, and I've written about it extensively. I talk about it uh, all the time. There's a lot of abuse that goes on with horses. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't want people to say, "Oh, natural horsemanship." I'm not a natural horsemanship person. In fact, most of that is is bogus and hokey pokey. So um, I, I'm at actual. I, I actually do know horses, and I've, I've been, you know, grown up around them and trained properly with that. Um, the hunter industry, the, the lunging that goes on and mm-hmm. um, P, the performance enhancing substances that are used is is really terrible. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, it, the hunters can be, okay, they are boring, but they also can be very beautiful to watch and well, and when well done. And I do think they should be a part of the industry, um, but not the way that they are at all. Um, it doesn't teach proper riding it doesn't teach safe riding and it also is is terrible to the horses how they're how they're treated not and i'm not saying about every horse i'm not talking sure. about every trainer of course there's trainers that that do not do that and treat their horses well mm-hmm. um 100 but there's many many that that is not the case you go stand at the hunter in gate of any horse show around north american and they're just all talking they have no problem like oh that horse too fresh go give a lunge. oh that horse too fresh go give it a needle yep. that's normal talk and right the trainers don't even mind saying it because they know it's just normal oh, well, okay go give it another twenty cc's of whatever. Mm-hmm. That that yeah. that really is awful because it's not necessary. Um now my fix for it for people that haven't read my stuff is the judging. Um and I'm not being here, criticizing the judge, I'm saying the way hunters are judged has led to this. If hunters were judged in in horses being more natural, then people wouldn't do that. Right. So I honestly, I don't put this on the trainers, and I don't even put it on the judges because that's how it's done. It, the whole industry needs to make a change and say this is what we're looking for in a hunter, um, right. This is what they were looking for in a hunter years ago. And, I, and again, I don't want to be one of those people like, oh, well, the past was way better than the present. I'm I'm literally Just talking about what's in the best interest of the horse,
0: yeah. Because it definitely has changed over the years, and it used to be fine when a horse played a little after a line, or you know, um, had it carried a little bit more pace. And that's
1: not—that's definitely not the case anymore. No, one hundred percent. And that's and so that so because the judges are looking for a certain type, then of course professionals are creating that type. To create that type, they spend hours lunging, which horses should rarely ever do, right. um, as far as lunging at all. And they um, are medicated to the extreme in the majority of horses. I just—it's mm-hmm. not every horse, but right. it's bad. And so that, to me, um, I'd rather have the hunters not exist than how the horses are being treated in today's mm-hmm. world. But ideally, just change the judging, and it would change everything and be very simple. But um, Uh, I've done some good things with my, and I'm not going to stop pounding on it, but I'm a little frustrated with it. I mean, I I did help a lot with the concussions and the helmets and to Uh to change the industry that way Um, with my my influence. um, I've gotten nowhere at all with changing the judging. (laughs) I just just keep pounding on it and I just keep hitting a brick wall, but um, that's what it is.
0: What do you think can be done in that area?
1: Well, the only way it can be, done is through public pressure to me. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't, you know, the... um our organizations, whether it be USEF or USHJ or Equestrian Canada, um, they can barely tie their shoes when it comes to a lot of stuff. I mean, they're just not, they're already not servicing their um, customers the way that they need to. And and I've been very, very critical of that as well. Um, So uh, I don't think that's the way to go. And I don't think more regulation is necessarily the way to go because of course people don't like that. So you don't want more regulation, more use more rules. Mm -hmm. Uh, It needs to be a public shift of opinion um, to say look this is what we're looking for with with the hunters and this that you know in in the best interest of the animal totally. um, and so to me it's it's frustrating because you have thousands of professionals that work with horses and say they love horses and care about horses but they're all mistreating them at the same time mm-hmm. so, yeah, I'm a little bit passionate about that
0: yeah yeah it's no, but that's good. I think that uh, I think that it would be. You're probably you probably talk to other individuals who have the same feelings. But it, the more that people speak out about things like that, the more um, others will say, "Hey, actually, I feel the same way." So I appreciate your honesty about the this area. Um, but uh, that about wraps up time for this episode. But um, Jay, I just wanted to thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing about your life and your passions within the industry. And um, I just think that you are a wealth of knowledge. So I really appreciate you taking the time.
1: Thank you, Bethany. I really appreciate the time being on here. It was a lot of fun and uh, hope to talk to you soon.